0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Stairway to CEO podcast brought to you by Future Commerce. I'm your host, Lee Green, and it's my mission to bring you a real, honest, and unfiltered interview with top business leaders from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 26 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today I spoke with John McDonald, the founder and CEO of Semi Handmade. Ranked among Inc. magazine's fastest growing private companies in the U.S. every year since 2015, Semi Handmade makes high end replacement doors for IKEA cabinets and has showrooms in New York, LA, Minneapolis, Palm Springs, and Chicago. In this episode, John shares with us his incredible journey from growing up on the East Coast to working in the mailroom at Paramount Pictures to attempting to join the Los Angeles Police Department to ultimately transitioning into the furniture business. We talk about the impactful relationship he had with his father, why he gave up his dream to be a writer, and how he accidentally cut off two of his fingers while making furniture, but persevered and built semi-handmade into a multi-million dollar business. Tune in to hear all of this and more. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave us an awesome review. We hope you enjoy this episode. John, thank you so much for being on the show today. I'm really excited to hear your awesome story in building Semi Handmade. Thanks for being on the show.
1: Thanks for having me. This is, uh, is going to be fun.
0: It's going to be really fun. And you're from Bryn Mawr. So tell me, let's start from the beginning. Tell me about growing up in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania.
1: Absolutely. So I, I was actually born in Los Angeles, lived here for a year, um, moved back to Bryn Mawr where my dad is, was born. It's just a beautiful area, um, kind of. Fairly well-known mainline, old beautiful homes, a lot of history. Um, I, you know, it's funny when you say that name. It certainly has connotations of a lot of wealth, which is accurate. But super, my life was super middle class, you know. So it was um, you had this crazy opulence, but you also had really normal. So I grew up with a nice, a nice family, two sisters, um, two great parents. Went to a Catholic grade school, high school. Um, and Were you? Yet.
0: The oldest sibling or where middle. were your sisters? You're middle. in the middle. All right.
1: And so whatever. And, your, whatever and your that.
0: parents, what did your parents do?
1: So my um, my mom uh, was a teacher. My mom taught third and fourth grade for about probably 35, 40 years. And my dad did a little bit of everything. My dad, um, he he didn't he didn't get an opportunity to finish college. So he did. He drove a school bus. He drove. Uh, he was a mailman. He worked. um drove an oil truck he was a trash man he did a ton of things I mean it was it was interesting and and, and honestly I, I kind of had some weirdness with my dad growing up because of that because I I don't know for a period I was I was embarrassed by that I had a lot mm. of friends who had maybe um, parents with what seemed like more regular jobs and I, I had um, I don't know it was something that I was hugely ashamed of and it kind of kind of all came to sort of settled in when I was in high school and it it changed my my relationship with him when I realized just how how awful um, I had sort of you know looked at him in some ways, um, mm. and it, it changed my life. I mean, and, and I and I started working with people in similar jobs like that, and um, it, when it was, was interesting.
0: When was that moment in high school that was, was pivotal?
1: I'll, I'll, I just never forget, and I have, I've never talked about this before um, in a setting like this, but um, I think there was a. There, you know it's, it's 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 humiliating to admit i think there was a there was a school event and i didn't again it sounds awful i didn't i didn't let him know i didn't invite him hmm. and i don't know if my parents found out or not but again it's it's really shameful to to sort of say out loud the best thing is when i finally realized how, how bad i've been behaving it changed our relationship and he we became like best friends, and so did he
0: find out or something that he wasn't invited to this I event.
1: You know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's it's like he had a very like a lot of people I knew, and that's why it's funny when you say Brimar, you, you you can certainly think certain things. Kobe Bryant, mm-hmm. he was the same high school as Kobe Bryant, you know, kind of crazy money, but wow. he, he, you know, both his brothers didn't finish high school. he started smoking when they were nine. I mean, it was a different life, right? And. Um, and my mom came from a little more, like a little more wealth, and so I always felt this sort of strain between the two of them. Like her parents never really accepted him because he had a more working class background, and maybe that, you know, not not to overly analyze it, maybe that rubbed off on me. Yeah. Um, and again, I don't know if if he may have found out. I think he did. I, I I'm, I'm having like you know flashback now. Something probably did happen, and it kind of exposed me as just a just a lousy human being, at least for that, right? And. Mm-hmm. And I went away to college and I came back and then we we, we became amazing friends. And, and the most amazing thing, um, the, the biggest like tribute to him was when I was in college at the University of Delaware. We can talk about that. Yeah. And I didn't know what I was going to do. I, kn- I knew I wanted to get to, out to L.A. and be a movie star or a writer. Neither, neither of which I had any right to sort of aspire. So I guess anybody can aspire, but I had no background in that. Um, he was totally supportive. He never questioned it. And it's that, and that's probably the most shocking part was maybe considering his background. That was 180 degrees from what he knew. Mm-hmm. And I said I wanted to do it, and he was never anything but incredibly supportive. You mm-hmm. know, emotionally, financially, certainly. And up until unfortunately he passed away about a year year and a half ago, um, he was my best friend, and and I know that my my friends really admired my friendship with him. You know that I was really just so close to my dad. yeah, um, and especially since we were so different, um, certainly starting out
0: right. That's a really interesting, interesting story um, to hear and and great that you could kind of that he could be so supportive of you and you could then kind of realize that maybe you weren't so supportive of him early on, but were able mm-hmm. to kind of adapt and and change and have a great relationship with him.
1: Well, it's, yeah, it's, it's, I'm thinking now because my mom's going to hear this and she, I've never, I don't think I've ever really talked to her about this. And then and, and I, 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 I was reflecting like, I don't know, like a year ago after he passed away. And I, and, and the, and the crazy thing of all that was I was so like in my head about, oh, my friends are going to find out my dad like was a trash man. I remember being a kid mm-hmm. and, you know, growing up where I did like, there were old school trashmen like there were guys that rode on the back of trash trucks and i don't know depending on where people live if they if they know what that's like it yeah. stops in front of your house and they pick up the trash and dump it in and so when you're a little kid it's cool like that's that's a really cool job for your dad to have right he brings yeah. that i'd have like five or six bicycles people throw stuff out and then you get older <laughs> and then you start getting self conscious and you become like a jerk but what i but what i was saying is like a year ago i sort of realized like i was in my head about oh my friends that have dads do these certain jobs are going to judge me and not like me, mm-hmm. and I realized no, a lot of them had dads have had the same kind of jobs, like you know, honorable, average, working class job. But but somehow I got it in my head that you know that was a reason to sort of just have this you know weirdness between us, right? You know? and, yeah. and again, it's, it's it's by far the most hu- humiliating like thing in my life. Like I'm just so ashamed of it. But I'm also so proud that we had such a great relationship. For right. So
0: long. right. That you guys were able to get past that and move on and have a good relationship. That's great. Yeah. Very interesting. So you went to University of Delaware, as did I. Very interesting. Yeah. What made you choose University of Delaware? I mean, it's pretty close by to Bryn Mawr. It but... is.
1: It's about, it's about an hour away. Yeah. Um, at that point in high school, um, senior year, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And so I only applied. I, I mean, I was a good student. I was an honor student and always did well. Um, but I only, I only applied to Delaware and Penn state and I got into both and Penn yeah. state was just way too big yeah. and a little farther away. And so I figured I'd go to Delaware and it and it was great. I mean, I was, you know, I look back and I didn't, I didn't probably take as advantage of it as I probably should have. Um, I did, I ran cross country and track for about a year and a half. I was in a fraternity. I did do some fun things, mm-hmm. but I never really, I never really felt settled in. And by the end I was desperate to get out. And so I, I graduated a semester early, knowing that I wanted to move to California Um,
0: and be a famous actor,
1: right? Or or something. You wanted to be
0: famous. You're like.
1: I was telling somebody, it's like, you know, I, I was, I took two classes in the esteemed University of Delaware drama school, which is like two winter, two winter session classes right. <laughs> that, I, that I thought I was pretty good. Let's go. I'll go try this. <laughs>
0: if I'm um, going to Delaware, I can be good anywhere. Let's do yeah, it.
1: I mean, um, it, it, it does sound ridiculous in hindsight, but it, it got me out here. And, um, and yeah, I was 21. I mean, I just, I just yeah. turned 21. It was 1989.
0: Hey guys, I want to tell you a little bit about a new report we're launching here at Future Commerce in partnership with Gladly called The New DIY. It's all about the new trend that has emerged around the passion economy and modern consumption, which begins with peer inspiration, continues with product education, and culminates into participation or an online purchase. The report covers how these trends start on social media, the importance of great customer experience across all brands, regardless of industry, and the implications this trend has on retailers. You can get the full report today over at futurecommerce.fm slash the new DIY. That's futurecommerce.fm slash the new DIY. That's far from home, too. You know, I mean, you kind of like stuck to home bounds a little bit. you were only an hour away in college. And then you're like, I'm just going to go all the way across the country. (laughs) Or your parents like, what
1: the hell? No, like I said, my parents sort of it it was it's funny because my dad um, had been in the army. And then he was working at the Long, um, Long Beach Naval Yard. And then my mom had had gone to school, grew up in Michigan, went to Michigan State. And she, and it's one of those things, like, you know, it wasn't until a couple of years ago, my mom finally told me this, you know, the whole story of her moving to California, which is an amazing thing. I mean, she and her girlfriends went to Michigan State and they all got jobs in Watts, like in, in, in LA in the, in the early 60s. And so she came out right before the Watts riots. I mean, there are just extraordinary pictures of her and her class, classes. It was just a different, a different time, right? And, yeah. and that part of the city burned and it was, it was, a, it was a major part, you know, kind of in our, in our country's growth. Um, so they had met, lived there for a couple of years, had me, my sister, and we came back. And so I don't know what drew me out here. Um, I always, you know, I always love movies, but I, I got it in my head to come out and my dad reached out to a woman um, named Kay that he had grown up with um in vermont same thing super working class irish background she moved to beverly hills like in the early 60s and she got a job um she was head waitress at house which is like the most famous deli in beverly hills and that's where all the movie stars and moguls and everybody you know has gone to forever and she knew everybody she was like <laughs> The mayor of Beverly Hills, and so <laughs> I met her once, like five years earlier. My dad said, "Can you come out?" She said, "Yeah, send him out." And I stayed with her and her husband for like six or seven months um, on the wow. sofa. Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, the, the, like, like, again, looking back, the the sort of generosity. And she got me a job at, at Paramount Studios, and I worked in the mail room there, delivered mail to Tom Cruise and Eddie Murphy and all kinds of people. And then I got a really good route where I delivered mail to all the executives. And because I was 21, and I didn't know anything, but I asked a lot of questions, I got a job on a movie, and so that was. Whoa. cool. Yeah, so that was cool. I worked Big um, time. On a movie called Dead Again, I was—I guess I was maybe 22, huh. but it was a uh, Kenneth Branagh, Emma Thompson, Robin Williams, Andy Garcia. It was cool. I mean, it was a small movie, but it was an amazing cast and a really like nurturing crew. And now I worked restaurants, you know, food service before I moved to LA. I worked like where we grew up. Philadelphia Country Club, Marion Cricket Club, waited tables there. So you had mm-hmm. you know older waiters and waitresses there. But working on a movie set, you had the whole range, right? And so that was the first time I had friends that were 50, 60, you know, it's like anything. I mean, you're at war for like 60, 70 days, 12, 14 hour days, six days a week, whatever. And so you bond that way. Mm-hmm. And, and, that was, and what was cool about that was, again, these people, some of them had just incredible resumes, worked on the most amazing films, but they were so generous too with just stories. And and what, what stood out to me the most was like, I realized, you know, I was thinking like, when you're 21, 22, I've got all these problems mm-hmm. and, and I have these stupid fights with my friends and you get older and that you grow out of that. And it's like, no, you, you work with like 60 year olds and they're complaining about divorce and, and <laughs> payment. You know what I mean? It's like the same shit. Like you think, I was thinking you grow out of it and you don't. And And that was actually really cool. That was like a watershed aha moment for me too. Like, it doesn't change. This is life, mm. um, and so yeah. I mean, that was that was an amazing experience,
0: right? Like life has its ups and downs. No matter what age you are, it doesn't just go away and become picture perfect after you know a certain milestone is achieved. Is that what you Absolutely. were originally thinking?
1: Yeah, and and just even like you know working with like celebrities or movie stars and just realizing how neurotic and crazy they are. Like, in a good right, way. they have their own like us, problems. Right? I mean, yeah, if this is crazy. <laughs> it's just a lot better paid, right? And and so. Um, and that was fun too, because I worked with some some really generous, and I keep saying generous, but actors too, that were just they treated me like you know, regular person.
0: Yeah. Which great. So you got this really cool job. What was your role on that first set that you were on? So I, was
1: a, I was a production citizen. I mean, which is just, you know, PA, just a gopher, you know, whatever. I worked for um the producer was a guy named Charlie McGuire, who is like this legendary guy that had, worked with Ilya Kazan on all the waterfront and East of Eden and all these classic movies and everyone just revered him. Um, he was big and he's this huge, like Irish Catholic guy that drove this little tiny, I like think an Alfa Romeo spider, you know, lived at the beach. It was just like, just people, they, they, they were scared of him, but they loved him. And so he kind of took a bunch of us under his wing and we did whatever he asked, right? So it was getting coffee and it was climbing up in trees and shaking them during the scene, you know, with a windy agitation scene. Um, uh, And and then from there, it was like, I I, I left that and I worked um, for a guy that created a show called China Beach, which was a really kind of well-known TV show back then in the early nineties about um, amazing kind of stories of of, um, nurses in Vietnam. And so that was interesting because I was, same thing, I was like a second or third assistant and I was fielding letters from it, it, it struck such a chord with, with um, with vets, you know, with Vietnam vets. And so and, and from, from different wars too. And so I was like reading, you know, I, I hate to call it like fan letter, fan letters, but it was just these people that were so moved by seeing stories that, you know, their stories being told, you know, especially like from a female perspective, which was, you know, really unusual, like a war, you know, a war show from a female perspective. Um, and then from there, I worked on commercials, did a bunch of different things. And at the same time, I started writing. So when I was at Paramount, um, we used to like dumpster dive behind the story department and it was, you know, literally going through dumpsters, finding scripts. And, and I've said, it was, it was the same time, I, I guess on the same age as, as, um, as JJ J. Abrams, you know, from, from lost and, and everything else. And, um, he had, he was like 21 he'd sold like two scripts for a million bucks, like back to back. And people were selling scripts for a million bucks. And Joe Astor house was selling basic instinct for 3 million bucks. And so everybody of course said, I'm going to write a script. And so that was how we kind of got into it. And so we would dumpster dive, and we find you know some really lousy scripts, but you'd find movies, you know, stuff that Paramount was, was producing. And so that's how you know screen, screenwriting is writing, but it's you know it's, it's a different kind of writing. It's very technical, and you can learn it. Um, doesn't mean you can do it well, because I did it for a long time and never made me you know never made me money. But it's a skill you can learn. It. And as you know, you've been on it for a while. It's a cliche. I mean, I'm out of it now, so everybody needs writing a screenplay. Which is cool, because why not? You mm-hmm. know, everybody's got a story. Yeah. Um, and I did that all through my bunnies while I was laying tables.
0: So this dumpster diving, I mean, what did that pan out to anything useful? Or what were you kind of No, used- I
1: mean, I think it was just, again, we were, at that point, I hadn't started working on the movie, So I was riding a bike, making six bucks an hour. Um, and we were just like killing time. And, and, and it was like, it's an, it is an amazing thing. Um, Paramount is a beautiful movie lot. I mean, their Warner Brothers is beautiful. There's a lot of great lots um, with with so much history, and so we were just like riding our bikes around on our brakes and just you know soaking it all in. And and it is again, it, it is a surreal experience if you, if you care about that stuff. It is surreal to sort of see like Jack Nicholson walking by and there's Kevin Costner and all these people. Right? I mean, <laughs> right. it's it's not even so much name dropping. It's just that's who you see. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, we, we found out that, that scripts were getting, you know, recycled in there. And so we started digging through and then you'd go home and read, you know, eight scripts over a weekend. And just, again, some of them were not great. Some of them were were really good. Yeah. Um, And and that's how I kind of got into that.
0: Nice. So you're like working your way up the ladder in Hollywood a little bit here, you know, you're um, second and third assistant and what happened from
1: there? So it just, it it became clear, like if I wanted to stay on the production side of things, I probably could have moved up pretty well with that. If I wanted to keep working for a producer, I could have gone through like the DGA program and become a, a trainee and then a second assistant director and a fir- first assistant director. You know, and if, and if people, I mean, you, you may know about the distinctions, I mean... Um, the director is the director A first AD or second AD is a very technical job. It's, it's a, it's a big job and it's, it's really high paying and it's all these different things, but it's not like, you know, artist Scorsese kind of directing It's You're basically running the set. And so I, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to go on the creative side and that's where writing came in. And so I, I didn't even try. The acting is not something I, I got out here for in about 10 minutes. I was like, I. I'm just not cut out to do this. You know, it's like, I think there's like, <laughs> why
0: was that? Yeah.
1: I mean, there's, I think it's a Spencer Tracy quote and I'm going to mangle it, but it's kind of the idea. You can't, um, want to be an actor. You've got to have to be an actor, like, mm. like a lot of people. It's got to be like, yeah. you're, you know, it doesn't mm-hmm. mean some people don't fall into it because they do, but, you know, especially as I've gotten older, um, and still loving the, the you know the movie business and writers and 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 especially people's stories. It's rare. It's always like the twenty year you know overnight success. Overnight success took twenty right. years, right? And so yeah. it is the people that got it out. And I always thought like I never, even in terms of what I'm doing now or when I was writing, I never thought oh I'm going to be like this this top level person. I'll just be the person that works all the time. Like in terms of actors, it's like character actors, the, the men and women you see all the time that maybe you don't know their name, but they're they're solid.
0: Yeah. You know. I feel like that quote can easily relate to entrepreneurship, you know. You can't yeah. want to be an entrepreneur, you just have to be an entrepreneur if you are one.
1: Well, I, yeah, and I, and for me even the 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 term that someone used that I kind of put to myself is I don't know, maybe it's accidental entrepreneur. I didn't I kind of fell into this whereas maybe your story leads you might have been the kind of person that's you know selling lemonade when you were little and then you started a business. you know what I mean I love those stories it's It's not me at all. that guy or girl that's been doing it from from the start, right? And then it sounds like you fortunate to sell your business last year. I mean, I look at it like there's another quote, um there's a guy named Richard Ford, a really good writer. and I think he said if you if you're able to write just one halfway decent book, that's enough. Like, and just the idea that like someone said to me, this isn't your only idea. I mean, it could be. And if it, if it is just one, it's, that's pretty good, right? But there can be more too. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't know, I'm comfortable sort of where I am. I've never really thought like, what's next? You know, How did like, you
0: discover entrepreneurship though? How did you go from kind of working in production to business?
1: Once I got out of working um, sort of production in my probably mid to yeah mid twenties, I was waiting tables. So, and that's when I was writing. So I was, I mean, I, you know, even though I never made any money, it's true. Like a lot of things, writers write. It doesn't, you know, if you're writing then you're a writer, it doesn't, it's not dependent on, are you getting paid for it? It's like, it's like a painter, any kind of artistic pursuit. If you're actually engaged in doing it, then, then, then you're that, that that thing. Um, And so, and I had a lot of friends that weren't that way, right? That were just, they loved the idea of going to a coffee shop and opening their laptop and sitting there with their deep thoughts and stuff, whatever. And I was always working and I was really disciplined and I was waiting tables the whole time. And so I was living, I lived all over LA. I mean, I lived primarily like in Hollywood. So I worked for the, for probably the longest period at a sushi bar in Beachwood Canyon, right up on Franklin, sort of across from the Scientology building, really cool area. And I was there for a while I would, I would write during the day and i would wait tables at night you know like you know you can make decent money mm-hmm. waiting tables uh bartending things like that but when i got into my early 30s it was just it was just clear that writing wasn't gonna happen it just mm-hmm. I, I don't know and it's it's interesting because like a lot of things right people that are pursuing their their dream i mean i do think like on the one hand it's not your business to tell someone, Hey, it's time to sort of pack it in. Throw
0: in the towel. Yeah. <laughs> but,
1: but there is, but there is a time for that. Right. And, and yeah. there are people that hold on way too long. And on the yeah. one hand, God bless you. Like I have a huge amount of respect, but it's also, it's a scary thing because I, yeah. I was one of those people that just was unhappy. I was miserable. Right. You know? And, and the interesting thing about screenwriting to me was like, even when I was in it, I, I always felt like really self-conscious about it. Like it, which is maybe hard to, to sort of to articulate, but like, like there are scripts you can read and you're and you're like, this is a movie, and and it seems really easy. I mean, obviously, it, like we would read like Cohen Brothers scripts and Tarantino, and those people are are on a different level, right? It's not even fair to sort of put them in the same class. Yeah. But it's or like Shane Black is a guy that wrote like *Lethal Weapon* and all these kind of action movies. You read those, and it's like, man, that's a movie. Um, and I, I could just tell I never had that. And I was also too, you know, probably because like spillover from my dad, also really judgy. So I was like, Adam Sandler, ugh, God, what, you know, <laughs> who wants to write that shit? And, and that's what you think. Like if you're an asshole and you're like in your mid-20s or early 30s, and then you get older and I look back and it's like, especially I got an eight-year-old son, it's like, I love that stuff. And, and there, is, there is a skill to that. Like there is um, a guy that I, that I love on Twitter, a guy named Ed Solomon, who wrote like Bill and Ted. Um, Excellent Adventure and all those movies, but also written a lot of great stuff with Steven Soderbergh and Men in Black. It's like, you have to be really smart and really good to write stuff that seems dumb. Like it's, you know what I mean? If that makes sense, like it it may not be for you, right? It, you know, so, but it, but, it, you know, but a comedy is, comedy especially is, you know, it's a gift, right? And so, um, and I, and I knew I didn't have it. And so it took a while to admit that and I was still waiting tables. And then in my early thirties, it was like, I got to do something. I mean, my parents were, as I said, incredibly supportive the entire way.
0: I definitely agree. There's a lot of skill in the comedy end of things. I mean, you're, I am a huge Jim Carrey fan. I grew up watching Ace Ventura, like, yeah. Detective, everything, Liar, Liar. I mean, that stuff definitely takes a lot of skill. So you had the self-awareness right. to realize, you know what? Yeah. I, I like this stuff, but I just don't think I'm great at it. Right. How did you start to pivot?
1: So, you know, looking back, probably like a lot of people, it's, uh, cliche is not the word, but in some ways it is. I mean, 9-11 obviously was such a world-changing moment for for all of us, right, that were alive. And I think that's when, like, for me, it was like, I got to do something. I'm in my early 30s, um, I'm a smart guy, but I can see 10 years from now, and if I don't sort of make a change, it'll be here before I know it, right? So, so did
0: 9-11 maybe kind of... I mean, is the right way to kind of think about this is, is was that kind of a wake up call in a way where life is short, like figure it out type of thing? Or what was it really that struck with you? What struck? Yeah, I
1: mean, like, I don't want, I'm trying to think what the the right word is. I don't want to co-opt it like, like that was, of course it was, you know, for all of us, again, a life, a life changing moment, a wake Mm -hmm. up call. And I I guess the answer is, yeah, it it is sort of like, I I want to have some direction in my Mm -hmm. life. You know um and so i went probably with Mo. i didn't i didn't enlist or anything but i i decided you know and this is it sounds as crazy saying it out loud as when i say hey i'm i moved to la to be a movie star but like i had always been interested in in like not not in a weird way, like I say, police work, think of all the crazy, these crazy guys that are interested in police work and things like that. But I love reading like police procedurals and true crime and things like that. And, I, and because I'm so judgy and a strong sense of right and wrong, I thought, hey, this is the natural thing. I'll become a cop, right? I'll join the LAPD. That seems like the, the smart thing to do, right? And so, you know, I started that process and... um you know, it's, I don't know if it's like a eight or nine step process, you know, the initial thing to like a three hour interview, all these different things, um, psychological evaluation, polygraph. Um, and I, I've told this story a few times. It's, it just, it didn't work out. Like I, I kind of washed out of the program. I didn't, I didn't get into the Academy for some really kind of what I think are kind of sketchy reasons. Um, that at the time, it was embarrassing. Everybody knew I was, I was going for the LAPD because what they would do is understandably, unbelievable background check, right? So it's like, you know, I have a couple terrible tattoos I've had forever. So when you go for the interview <laughs> and I'm wearing a suit and tie, they make you strip down and describe your tattoos because they're, they're worried about gang affiliations and things like that. And, uh... they wanna know, and so they want to know everybody you've ever dated, every mm. girlfriend, every boyfriend, every whatever. They want to know every nickname. Like, so I, I'm one of these people, good or bad, that has a million nicknames. In high school, um, mm-hmm. they, they call me Skip. In college, they call me Edge because I used to look like the guitar player from U2. On, on Dead Again, they call me Spanky, which is a horrible nickname. Um, but you I basically
0: failed the background check,
1: no, no skill no, uh, but, but the point is they were like they just knew everything and they were asking people questions, and everybody knew and everybody was excited for me, right, I and mean, understandably, right, so John's gonna make a change in his life and do this holy shit kind of thing <laughs> and and um and it didn't work out because again, I passed the polygraph, but there was a question of like had I smoked pot and, and and I was honest about it. And, <laughs> it, I mean, it's, it's just, it's just insanity. I mean, like, but, the, but the point is thank, it was humiliating at the time. Thank God it didn't work out because I'm way too emotional. I would have never been able to, to conform to what you've got to do to, to be, you know, um, like a public servant. I mean, those guys, those men and women are unbelievable. I mean, it, you know, that's an incredibly difficult job. And so I'm thrilled. I didn't get it. But from that, I was like, okay, man, what, what what's next? And so I got into, um, I told somebody recently, yeah, I mean, my mom would would, would refinish furniture when, when I was like in high school, I think, and maybe that rubbed off on me. So what I started to do was buy old desk chairs at, at antique shops and take them home and strip them and paint them and refinish them or do whatever, and then take them to swap meets and sell them. And I started selling, very minorly selling those. And my buddy said, why don't you make furniture? It like honestly never occurred to me like that that was a possibility It just because never done it, never had any interest as a kid, never wanted to cut the grass, never wanted to do anything, right? <laughs> um, and so, but I started um, I started doing it. I started buying tools and making really, really lousy two by four tables and taking them to swap meets. So I would go to like the, the Fairfax swap meet, um, Melrose and Fairfax in Hollywood on Sundays and sell like $75 really crappy tables. And so I, I realized, okay, I wanna get good at this. So I wanted to take classes. And so I looked around and um, it was really hard, I think, you know, that a lot of schools were were discontinuing programs because of liability and danger, you know, risk. Um, And so I figured I got to find something. So I found, I found an amazing um, school called Cerritos College, which is down um, in Orange County, amazing woodworking program. It's like 50,000 square feet of shops, like 700 students, really spectacular. And about two weeks before I got in, um, I bought I bought like a new bandsaw and like everything I do in life. I didn't, I didn't read the the instructions. A bandsaw.
0: What do you mean? Is that just like kind of a normal saw or what is that?
1: Like like a bandsaw is a a vertical saw, right? So, Mm -hmm. I mean, a table saw is is like a tabletop and you push the wood, you know, push the wood through it. A bandsaw is like a vertical, it's a standing thing. And it's actually, butchers use bandsaws to cut like sides of beef. Like you've seen them before. It's got a really long, thin blade. It can, it could be like a foot long or even or even longer. You can, you push things through it and you can, mm. and, and they, they cut meat through it, but, but woodworkers use it. And so I made the, but, but the key is you're only supposed to expose as much of the blade as you need. Right? So if you're only, if you're cutting a piece, that's an inch, that's an inch high, you'd only have it like an inch and a quarter. You just push it through. Well, of course I didn't read the instructions. So I had the blade like up all the way. So it's like a, you know, 12 to 13 inches of blade. And you know, again, I throw the instructions aside. I, I start pushing a piece of wood through the through the blade. And all of a sudden, I'm, I'm missing like two fingers.
0: No, stop.
1: Yeah. I, yeah oh yeah. my gosh,
0: so, that sounds but, so painful.
1: Well, it was. I mean, it, it was, you know, it was stupid more than anything else, right? I mean, they were able yeah. to touch, you know, my, my ring finger. Pinky wasn't as big a deal, but it was one of those things where I said to my buddy, my buddy owned a house, um, a really cool craftsman house in in Koreatown. And he was out cutting the grass and I was in the the little wood shop working. And I walked outside and I said, you you know, you gotta find my finger. We gotta go to the hospital. And so literally goes goes and finds my finger. I wrap it up in my shirt, we go. Um, I got it mostly reattached. Um, But the funny part was like a week later, I started that woodworking class at Cerritos college. And the class was the first class. You got to take is shop safety. So there I am with my hand, you know, Oh no! With, and, and, and between, <laughs> if you hand. could
0: have just waited a few weeks. <laughs> I know.
1: I mean, but again, it's, it's so, it's so on brand with me. And so, and I did that. And, and, and again, my hand was, was, you know, set for like six to eight weeks and I waited tables through all of it at that sushi bar, wrapped my hand, like in a bag. I mean, it's so ridiculous. Only one person said, dude, why is your hand in a bag? Like while you're serving food. I mean, it's a it's a reasonable question. Um, but the thing was, Leah, it's like I like I it was like I said, hundred percent my fault. Like there are there are guys and girls that, that that lose fingers um in woodworking and they're spectacular woodworkers. I was not. And I think that might have been why I I kind of didn't miss a beat. Once I healed, I kept going, right? Because I knew how I understood that it was dumb and it was avoidable. You know, maybe if someone it was more of a freak accident, it might have kind of deterred them, it didn't to me. And so I was getting good at it. I knew I really liked it. it more than anything else, it was like it's totally empowering. You know, because if you're an actor, you're a writer, you know, model or whatever, you know, whatever you're doing, it's like you're 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 at everyone else's mercy. You're, you know, you gotta get booked, you gotta do whatever. This right. was something that I controlled. You right. know, yeah, I was working for clients, but I could also make my own stuff and sell that.
0: Uh, I still think though, if someone else I mean I think normally people if someone else was in your situation, I think they would be like, I just sawed off my fingers. I don't think, I think this is a sign that I should not do this. <laughs>
1: you're yeah, like, I mean, it's true. I, I mean, you, you're right. I, but again, it was like, I, I mean, I always, I used to, I haven't said it recently, but I, what motivated me was like fear and desperation. It was saying like, I finally found something I like. Yes, this is a big kind mm-hmm. of maybe speed bump, but I, I, I need to stick to it yeah you You enjoyed it too much to let it go yeah and so and i was also yeah i was in a serious relationship we eventually got married and so there was that too like that that sense of responsibility like you know she was a very successful lawyer and so i've got i've got to provide you know it's not going to be much if you're a woodworker but it's still you know still something you know sense of pride yeah um and so, so I got right back on the horse. I took a few classes. I got good. I learned how to make cab. I, I, I transitioned from doing furniture um, to making cabinets, and you can you can you know get a lot more work making um, custom cabinets, kitchens, bathrooms, all kinds of stuff like that. And all that was going great, like through the early two thousands, mid you know, um, two thousand five, two thousand six, um, and then like everybody else, I hit a wall in two thousand eight. I got divorced. Um, I mean, the irony of that too is um, I'm a huge Philadelphia Phillies, you know, baseball fan, Mm -hmm. and that was the year they finally made it to the World Series, 2008. And my my wife at the time and I split up like a a month before it happened, and so I was miserable. I couldn't just appreciate the World Series. But what it forced me to do is, and I I have an eight-year-old son. I didn't have any kids then. Um, I I moved into my shop, so I was, uh, you know, once again, I was like embarrassed, humiliated, felt like a failure. Uh, I didn't want to see anybody, hmm. and the business was also kind of teetering, and so I figured that with it. I'm in my shop. Uh, it was me and my dog Molly. I still have Molly. Molly is Molly's almost eighteen now, which is amazing. I got her wow. in two thousand four. What kind of dog? Um, she's like a ter- like a, a terrier poodle mix. You know? <laughs> okay. so she looks like an e like an Ewok now. Um, she's eighteen. She's blind, deaf. She has like one tooth, you know, but she's tough. All right. And at the time, man, she was scrappy. So we lived in that shop. You know, it was a 2000 square foot shop. I had probably 150 square foot office. I um, slept on, I had an Ikea sofa. I slept on the sofa. I was, I guess I was 40 at the time. I didn't have a shower. I had, you know, I had like a bathroom, but it forced me to join 24 hour fitness about a mile away. So I would work 14 hours a day. Then I would go to the gym at like 11 o'clock at night and work out and then take a shower and come home and do it over and over. And that's when I kind of stumbled on the Ikea thing. I had met a guy maybe six months earlier at a design show. One thing I always did when I was even doing custom cabinets was I was, I approached it like a business, right? Even though all my friends that were woodworkers were were craftsmen and artists and their head was like in the clouds, um, I was like, this is a business, you know? And so I would do design shows and I was really good at networking. and, And that's when blogs first started and blogs were kind of it had given me some attention and I met a guy like six months prior at a design show and he came up to me and he said, you know, did you ever think about, have you ever thought about making doors for Ikea cabinets? And the answer was no, I, I didn't really know what he was talking about. And so we talked about it, that, that was a Friday and then he came back the next day and we talked about it more. And then I didn't do anything, you know, for a long time and I got divorced and again I was living in my shop and that's when it occurred to me, like, you know, you know, is there something here? And so, you know, into 2008, 2009, the economy starts rebounding finally, and jobs are picking up. And what I started doing was saying to people, to to homeowners, like, hey, you know, I'm going to do a custom cabinet job for you. It's going to be beautiful. The doors will look like this, whatever it is. Um, But what if we, 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 we save some money by doing some custom cabinets and some IKEA cabinets? You know, I can go to IKEA. I can buy these really inexpensive white boxes. The hardware is great inside. Um, And you're never going to know the difference. So, because I'm going to make these amazing doors and side panels, you know, would you be willing to try? And there was a, there's a really amazingly talented, cool architect here in LA, a woman named Barbara Bester, who's a superstar, who like did the headquarters for Beats by Dre. And I said this before, she's like, when the Beastie Boys need a beach house, Barbara's the one that designs it. I mean, she's just like a rock star and just the coolest, like funkiest down to earth lady too. And so I was doing a job with her and I don't know, if, I, I just sort of pitched to her, Hey, can we mix into my IKEA? And she was like, yeah, let's do it. Cause that's kind of her thing anyway. I mean, it really is. I mean, that's kind of what's so interesting and unique about her is there's no errors about what she does. Right. I mean, it's like, it can be, you know, high fashion or low fashion, right? It doesn't matter. And so we did it with that. And then I started offering it to other clients. And so it became like, you know, so it was going from a hundred percent custom over the next few years to like 90% custom and the 10% Ikea and just mixing it in, right? And so, um, and for the first probably year or so, I never, I didn't do a full Ikea kitchen with my doors. It was just kind of doing a custom and Ikea kind of hybrid. Um, but then through to 2009, 2010, 2011, that's when it started to take off.
0: I think for a lot of people listening, they might not be very familiar with the process of um, what an Ikea kitchen actually is, you know, all the things that are entailed. Um, I definitely have that experience. I think obviously you do too. So I think just to explain a little bit further um, and feel free to dive in here. But um, if you are, you know, renovating or starting from scratch with the kitchen, basically when you go to Ikea, you can buy everything you need from the cabinets to the door handles to the just the whole structure, you can get all the appliances, uh, the countertops, and they make it pretty seamless in the way they install as well. Um, and so what you're saying is you started with this kind of hybrid of using mm-hmm. some of Ikea's stuff. So when you go there, you don't have to pick up and pay for everything. Um, right. You can kind of like order. I, I assume that's how it works, right? They would order the doors because you have to basically buy the whole and design the whole kitchen. Right. They just wouldn't buy the doors.
1: Right. To go so do you. Yeah, so I mean, look, I- IKEA. When that when that guy first came up to me, like in two thousand eight or whenever it was, you know, and asked me about IKEA, I knew IKEA as well as anybody. Which is, yeah, they've been around, but it's dorm furniture, you know. The, you know, it's just basic stuff. I didn't really know anything beyond that. But as you just said, I mean, IKEA is obviously much much more than that, and kitchens especially um, are. So they're standout i mean it's high quality every year yeah. they've they finish like first or second jd power customer satisfaction quality yep. um they just do kitchens as well as anybody and at that scale nobody you know touches them right so you oh my go gosh. in there it's and- the most like,
0: affordable best kitchen i think
1: you can i buy. mean it's a three-quarter <laughs> melanin but again I, I i don't work for them um yeah. but like it's, and they don't need me to say it, but it's a three-quarter melamine box if you know about that stuff. It's it's the same cabinets that the that the most expensive European cabinet companies use in the world. Yeah. Uh, it's it's Bloom hardware, which is the best. Um and then they and then they let you not buy doors, and that's yep. the key, right? So yep. yeah, you can you can go online, use their free 2020 software, which is great. Design your kitchen, you can do it with doors, without doors, and then you come in and, and, and it's a la carte, like you said, you or you you kind of pick what you want. Um yep. And so there were people at the time that were making doors on their own, really kind of DIY. You know, the, the term hacking or really doing it on their own. Um, and there wasn't really there was a door company still around called sures based. Um, I'll give them I'll give them a shout out because they they did it first out of North Dakota. Um, and they were an RTA, were ready to assemble a company. They still are, and they make you know knockdown cabinets and drawers and stuff. But they were making doors for IKEA as well, but never promoting it. To this day, they still don't really promote it at all. Hmm. But um, but yeah, it, it just, it just made sense. Right? Yeah. Cause Maybe. their only
0: options are, I think they have like three different finishes and very limited colors, right? So you kind of get the basics. Yeah. So the kind of doors and things that you provide just allow the customer to customize and make such a cool kitchen instead of kind of um, cookie cutter in a way. Right.
1: I mean, and they definitely, they, they definitely have expanded, you know, their, their yeah. offerings, but it's just, you know, I mean, the, the things that, that we can do with Ikea, um, are just small things like just custom-sized panels, appliance panels for things like your refrigerator and and um, and things beyond just a dishwasher. Um, yeah. Really cool materials like real wood veneers, which which are super custom, which makes your kitchen different than literally everyone else's. Um, the Again, refrigerator panel,
0: sorry, the refrigerator panel that you mentioned is an interesting one because you're right. The one that they have, the only one they have is so narrow. It doesn't actually fit most modern refrigerators these days. So I assume that your panel is probably a little bit wider.
1: Well, yeah, we we can do whatever, whatever you spec out. Right. So mm-hmm. like on a, on a dishwasher, if you have like a Fisher Paykel, like a two piece drawer dishwasher, you know, all, all Ikea is going to offer the one basic 24 by 30 standard. Right. But yeah, so we can, we can, we can do anything like that, but it, but it is also recognizing that um, I, I always say you're not competing with Ikea in the same way. You're not competing with Amazon. I mean, Amazon's different than everybody else, but Ikea, you can buy your kitchen today, as you know, mm-hmm. and and you can, and then the price you can't be. Um, yeah. So our doors are more expensive than, than their doors. They have some doors, which are like four bucks, you know? So mm-hmm. ours are significantly more expensive, um, but we have a really good range and as we've grown, And we started working with manufacturers we've been able to come in at lower price points have a lot more versatility um so yeah so all through 2010 2011 that's when it started to um to really take off um and one of the kind of watershed moments for us was i think around 2013 where we did our first real collaboration um with sarah sherman samuel and so that's a pretty well-known designer um and she reached out to me and said, hey, I'm doing a remodel of my, my bungalow in Venice, California. You know, I'd love to, you know, maybe collaborate on some doors. And so we did. And, and looking back, you know, we're, we're, we're pretty good friends now. I mean, I, I kind of joke, I don't even know if I gave her much of a discount at all. We gave her some break, gave her some, some unpainted doors. Sarah painted them this amazing pharaoh and ball color. She's, you know, she staged the kitchen. She styled it, took amazing photographs, did a spectacular job. And um, it, it went viral. I mean, it just sort of became this iconic kitchen just because she just What were
0: those um, metrics for success of that viral-ness? What, would, that, what does that mean?
1: So I think I think Remodelista, which is a really good remodeling blog, um, published it. And then from there, some of those things got picked up by Yahoo. And then it was everywhere. I mean, and like to this day, you know, I kind of joke about her in terms of she should be getting royalties. I mean, there are people that, that do, that, that knock off the kitchen completely. Like it's a, it's got a- Harold Ball calls it pigeon. I don't know why. It's like a kind of a green, greenish base with brass handles and then white wall cabinets, super clean. Um, like Pottery Barn did stuff with, similar to it. Like all these big brands just sort of were you know, inspired by it. Um, but it just, it just sort of put us on the map. It's certainly like, you know, us and, and her, I think it really kind of set her in direction. I think Sarah's background was graphic design and she wasn't really, you know, what, what she is now in terms of being like a home designer. Um, but that was the start. And so from there, people start. you know, again, a lot more attention. At that point, we're shipping nationally. You know, you go from shipping just in Southern California the first couple of years to start shipping in New York and around the country. Lots of hurdles with that LTL shipping. Um, that's I scary. assume
0: you have self-funded everything, right? You never yeah, took so, outside so capital.
1: Fund, yeah. I mean, so never never taken any investment. My dad and, and, one, and one friend lent me a little bit of money um, to start. But um, basically, just to keep the lights on, and so that was um, so we, we've been fortunate with that. And so through t- 2013, 14, that's when it starts to, um, you know, I was doing I was doing the milestones recently. It's it's like I never thought I would be where we are today, right? So even you know whenever it is 2000, maybe 12 when when we finally hit like a, a million dollars, I think 2011, right? It's just you know I never thought I'd be doing this. I, I remember like the first year I made like 150 thousand, and it's like you know it's holy shit and then it's 250 and then 500 and then a million two and then it's like two eight three nine it keeps going right oh. and so it's it was shocking in that sense and and that and again looking back at screenwriting it was starting to realize well maybe i can become as good at, as good at this as i wanted to become in that other pursuit right yeah and and, and, and be completely as in control as you can be right um, you know Absolutely. Um, Well, tell us
0: about one of the most challenging moments, um, through outgrowing your business over the last few years. I mean, what has been a very, very challenging moment? Was there any moment where you're like, Oh my God, how are we going to get through this? Or, you know, when did you face plant? What was, (laughs) tell us about a a challenging
1: time. I I mean, obviously, um, like the initial pivot, whatever that was, 2008, 2009, when I got divorced, and was living in my shop at 40, right? And realized, man, I I gotta do something. Um, Over the last few years, we've just been so fortunate. I mean, certainly there are day-to-day challenges. I think the biggest challenge maybe in the last two years and and definitely the last 18 months was reaching a kind of a state of like fatigue. I I have a good friend who's still a partner, um, but has left the business day-to-day like in the last year. Mm-hmm. and um that was the thing where it was coming to a head where we wanted to go in different directions he loved the idea of manufacturing and, and vertical kind of integration all that stuff and i was like no we got to outsource everything there are you know companies here in the u.s we work with now that can make our doors uh um, faster and better and they can drop ship them directly to the homeowner and that's where i want to go and and it was just he he just you know it, I mean this in a good way or a bad way. He he wasn't as he's just not as ambitious as me, and and again in a bad way. Yeah, you know, I say that because it, that can be not a great thing because it's never enough. I mean, yeah, but being honest, like yeah, it's not enough. Like what I've done is not enough, and maybe it's because I started later, and I, I look at someone like you, right, and who's you know significantly or whatever younger than me, but like I think, well, shit, if I would have been doing this, started this when I was twenty-one, where would I be now? Fortunately, I don't waste too much time doing that. But I yeah. think it's also fair to sort of say, wow, if I knew, you know, back then, where would I be? Um, and so with him, yeah, he was happy to do what we do. He, it's that term, like, do you want a lifestyle business? Go to work every day, make a nice living. And I was like, no, nah, I don't want that. Like, I, I want to do more. And if there's an opportunity to sort of sell the company, I want to look at that, you know, look at you know strategic partnerships. And so us splitting up um like in the last you know a year ago was painful the analogy that i use if that's the word is like is like a band like you're in a band and you and you pay your dues and, right. you, and, you, and you do everything together and you love each other and you you hate each other and um and then you break up and it's and that's like any other relationship it's like a marriage or a boyfriend or a girlfriend and it's painful
0: right
1: you know and so that's where like and i and, and i said like i want to go you know be a solo artist i want to do my own thing i want to work with other people Mm -hmm. and that was a painful conversation to have with him because um i I wouldn't want someone to say that to me right and so 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 to answer your question that's probably the biggest challenge like you know I'm i'm an emotional person i mean that and 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 we and we still work together we own a we own our headquarters together and so we're still we're still connected but we've definitely gone in different paths. Um,
0: it's interesting to hear you describe yourself as an emotional person and that being in your as a strength, right? Because I yeah. think a lot of times in business, being emotional is seen as something that's not a positive thing. But I actually agree with you completely. our my perspective is is that if you're emotional, that's what keeps you bonded to your mission and your vision and your you know ability to keep going through this kind of business fatigue that you're referring to.
1: But even hearing you say that, Lee, it's I'm so kind of hyper aware that like men can be emotional and passionate and other things. And with women, it's there are different words to describe the exact same behavior, right? And so it is such a, it's such bullshit. Like, I mean, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, like I, I certainly, I, I, I'm hyper self-aware, whatever, you know, good and bad and i get away with stuff that other people maybe couldn't get away with maybe the women you know certain, certain women in my position couldn't get away with or wouldn't do you know i right. you know i have an amazing fiance and she works i've never been with anybody who works as hard as she does and i've always sort of had relationships with incredibly strong women and they've always had to work harder generally than men i mean i'm generalizing here but it's like because you just have to right mm-hmm. and so yeah for me it's my strength and i get to i get to be me and i get to pop off but I also realized that I have the benefit of gender, right? Right. Um, and that's why, I mean, and, you know, it's kind of an interesting transition, maybe, um, because, you know, hitting that, hitting that wall in the last year and a half and feeling that fatigue, it's like, I feel like I'm at my, the ceiling of my ability, right? And so I don't know if I can get us to the next place. And maybe that's not giving myself enough credit, but I just, um, I was tired. And so in the last even, you know, year, it's like, I, I need to, I want to bring in someone to run the company day to day. Um, I get to be the big idea person and sort of do fun things like this and make relationships. I love doing that. Um, We hired a woman named Beth Brenner to to be president of the company at this point, I guess probably about six weeks ago. And so Beth is a woman that I met through her sister, Randy, Um, just, you know, an amazing family, been in kind of magazines and publishing and marketing their whole lives, like including their father um, and New York based. And, um, we kind of, I met Randy, I've known Randy for a few years. Randy's kind of a, I consider her like a mentor. She's, she's a good friend and really smart lady and incredible kind of resume. And has been really helpful just answering basic questions. Right. I am I'm, I'm good at asking questions and not being afraid to look stupid, you know, cause I'd rather yeah. do that than right to make a complete jackass of myself, <laughs> which I do, but you know, um, but anyway, so but so I I'm Randy introduced me to to Beth, her sister last year, like this time last year. And just a brief conversation at at an event kind of um didn't really know best background at the time and then I kind of put it to bed. And then, you know, COVID hits. Um I'm in the process of, you know, starting a new line of cabinets we're going to launch this fall and I start thinking, you know what? We're fortunate to stay busy uh, as a business, but maybe this is time to bring in help. And so yeah. I reached out I reached out to Randy and I said, look, um, not thinking about Beth, I said, it's time to bring someone in. What do you think? And we started talking about her sister, talking about Beth. And she said, well, you know, do you want to talk to Beth? And I thought, yeah, I'll just talk to Beth and pick her brain, you know, like not considering her a candidate, just because I didn't know really how great her background was. Mm-hmm. And so we got on a call, we hit it off immediately. Um... Like I, I kind of knew, and again, I don't know when it was, but in, within the call, like, man, I think I might've found the candidate, you know? Nice. And, and I did, I got the sense from her too, that she was like, dude, I'm, I'm the one, like, you know, it was, it was, <laughs> yeah. you know, I mean, she's, she's, actually, she's great in a lot of ways, but, but direct in that way too, which I love. Yeah. Right. And so, and so I got the phone and I thought, man, maybe this is it. And so we had a couple more calls and it was it was just such an easy decision. Right. And it was mm-hmm. such a lift for me, like starting again in, in some, sometime in July, I think through, through like, you know, late July and then early August and figuring out we're going to do this. And then sort of, you know, having her nice. unwind out of her job, but yeah, yeah. amazing background. And as, as a publisher, she's one of the people that started Domino magazine um, I think back in 2004, which is a seminal design gets yeah. kind of like, you know, the Bible of design.
0: How big is your uh, team now?
1: So right now we're probably at 55. 55
0: Um, people. All right.
1: Yeah. So so at our at our biggest we were about 75. So when we were still manufacturing we had about 38 um, guys and girls that were making doors. And then so when we got out of that and started outsourcing it that kind of dropped us down. And then we just started adding marketing, sales, customer service, everything like that. I mean the interesting thing about Beth um, is she's a long distance hire. So before March I would have never considered remote hire. And anybody, let alone someone who's the president. right. And it was easy. And then through her, we um we hired an amazing marketing director, um, Molly Mcdermott walsh and 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 another amazing woman, alyssa. And so we we kind of built this this incredible team in the last um in the last like six weeks. Wow. that, that, that completely has changed the company, right? and and yeah. in a lot of ways, it makes sense, too. Because I say this, and I, again, I want want you to take it in the spirit. I say we started out as like a like a dude company in the sense that it was a main it was all guys. Like we, we made stuff. which does not say women can Of course they can, but it was all guys making making doors and furniture and stuff. Uh-huh. And then you know it be, the company grows and you start to thank God you start to diversify. And then looking at our customer base, it's like eighty five percent women, right. right? And so I was always feeling this self consciousness of. I'm, I definitely have a certain energy that, that, that I like, but can be really kind of pushy and strong. And, um, I don't want to be the voice of this company. Like I was for a long time, like in social media and things like that. And so it's like sort of growing as a company. Right. Uh-huh. And so now, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm proud of a lot of things. I'm proud of this, the diversity of our 55 people. The fact that I think maybe 12 out of 16 top people are, are, are all women. Um, it's just a different place, right? So
0: how have you um, grown personally as a leader? Because obviously starting and growing a business involves a lot of professional and personal growth. And it sounds like you've obviously learned a lot along the way. How do you you know, think that you've grown personally?
1: I think um, that's been a challenge too. I spent a long time feeling like such a jerk, like calling myself a CEO. I still feel weird about it, right? Like, it, Why? Just because it sounds to me, it sounds like so, so pretentious or pompous. I mean, it's absurd because it's a thing, right? But like, I, I never expected to be doing this. And I, to a fault, want to be like relatable to like employees and stuff. I want to just like kind of be casual. And I sometimes, you know, stupidly forget that, of course, they're trying to put on their, put their best, Phase four with me all the time. And I'm just like, no, act stupid and, and, and make dumb jokes. You know what I mean? Like, and, and I forget, like, and so as a leader, I'm still learning. What's nice about these new hires too is they've got so much more experience, right? And so right. it's interesting watching them. And certainly, as we, as we all know, men and women are different. And so, you know, these, these new ladies are really nurturing and really like, um, which is the best way to be, right? If you're going to be a coach or a leader, I can certainly be hot, hot and cold. My fiance is going to hate this. I can be super charismatic and charming and funny. And then I can be like, man, I got a bag on, like, I'm, I'm, I'm not happy, Mm -hmm. you know? And that's, and that's okay. If you're in a vacuum, but not when you've got people looking to you, Mm -hmm. you know? And, and so, and that, that was part of the fatigue too, was feeling like I'm not cut out for a lot of this.
0: So what advice would you have for founders that might be in that seat? You know, because we all, as a founder, you get thrown the CEO title. Not everybody's really cut out for it after the company grows to a certain point. Um, you know, looking back and being self-aware, what were some kind of red flags maybe for you where you're like, maybe I want to give the reins to someone else?
1: I think it was just, again, I've certainly grown in terms of, um, I like, I think, communicating. Um, I've gotten much better where. When it was, you know, it started out as a sole proprietor, it's all about you and you get to work by yourself and you call the shots. I definitely used to have, um, issues where I would get, you know, probably anger issues, like, you know, like out of of frustration. Um, and certainly as you diversify your hiring and you add more people, you just, you can't behave that way. It's just like pulling. Right. Right. Um, I, I would say to people like I, well, well, my strength is like, I'm good at, as I said to you, like asking questions and being willing to admit there's a lot of stuff I don't know. Right? Just the idea like you don't know what you don't know. and there's a ton that I don't know. And so as much as I, I'm proud of what I've done and, and and what we continue to do as a company, um, I'm also aware that uh, it's it can be so much easier, right And so that's why just in this short period of time with these with these new people, there have been a few spots where it's felt a little uncomfortable, like a little bit of stretching um but it, but, but like a good kind of uncomfortable. You know, because I'm used to being super controlling, you know, that guy kind of person. Um, and I'll always be some of that. But it is, there's also something nice about, you know, I'm I'm not in charge anymore. You know, I don't look at Instagram. I mean, as much as I used to be on it all day, I'm obsessed with that and just, it's a relief.
0: So what kind of qualities or characteristics do you think make up a strong entrepreneur?
1: Obviously, you know, resilient um, assume failure, just have, have a thick skin. I mean, again, these, these all sound, these, these sound like cliches, but, um, you know, be, I mean, be fearless, right? You know, you're, you're putting yourself out there. I mean, that, that's the thing about writing. It takes a huge amount of courage to, or, or an actor or whatever, or, or a model, or like to, to sort of go up there and, and do this thing and you put yourself out there. Right, and and there were times where I gave scripts to people and they hated it, and they and they and they ate me ate me alive, and it's humiliating, right? But um, but it's better than people I knew that would would never do it. They they'd be writing, but they will never show you anything. Right, and, and so and so as a, in the business too. I mean, I think you know I don't watch Shark Tank as uh, really any anymore. I mean, I, I appreciate it and I think it's great, but what what it proved to me is. Like there are no bad ideas. There are just, it's just bad execution, right? You can, you can hear the most crazy idea and somebody's maybe figured it out. And that, and that's the inspiring thing where it's like, I'm doing something that's kind of front-facing and kind of, um, we work with, you know, influencers and celebrities and designers and that's cool. It's also awesome um, to meet people that don't, you know, they're just in their space creating something that's, again, it's helping the world or it's not, it's a not nonprofit or something that like, the complete opposite of what we do. Um, Yeah. You know?
0: So as we wrap up here, um, what advice do you have for aspiring entrepreneurs or, you know, just entrepreneurs in the trenches right now? Do you have any final words of advice?
1: Yeah. I mean, I would say like consume everything in that space, like listen to podcasts like yours, um, read magazines, um, I mean, there, there's so much content in the world right now that wasn't available like three, four five years ago for, for you know, people that want to start businesses. Um, yeah. And also just like, don't be afraid to reach out to, to people, like to people like me. I mean, people, you know, write really nice, hit me up on LinkedIn or whatever and say, I heard your podcast or whatever. And, you know, ask me a question. And even that, like, I try to, I feel like such a jerk if I don't answer because, because you know, it takes, it takes a little bit of guts to do that. I, I, on the one hand, I think, why not just do it, And You know, just reach out to people because that's what I always did. I always, I continue to DM people um, and just reach out and try to, you know, yeah, get together for a talk or whatever. Um, but I would just, again, encourage people to, to, be, to be brave in that sense, right? Um, because, you know, most people, especially other entrepreneurs, get the fact that this is hard And if you're sincere and professional um, with with your approach, I think um, most people are going to respond.
0: Yeah, I agree. Well, John, thank you so much for sharing your story today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you for having me, Lee. It was a pleasure.